Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started tonight. Um, um, uh, I'm going to ask you to have to take your seat, ma'am. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer and uh, we'll get uh, you right into the message tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again so much for uh, just your love, your care, compassion that uh, you've exhibited to us. And uh, Lord, that you would uh, just give us your word to, to guide and direct us and to uh, lead us into those paths of righteousness. And uh, Lord... Uh, it's, uh, we know the purpose behind it of, uh, obviously pleasing and honoring you, but also Lord, the benefits that we receive from it, um, are just so great. Uh, especially when we start talking about peace in our lives and the wisdom that you give us. Pray Lord tonight that as we finish off, uh, the, uh, third chapter here in James, that Lord, you would just, uh, give us that wisdom and understanding that we would take these things, uh, begin to apply them to our lives, Lord so that we would avoid the war and the conflict and the fighting that um, is a, a major stumbling block in our lives, as well as a, a destructive power that uh, brings us down. And Lord, I just pray that uh, we'd all have hearts to listen and ready to receive uh, all of it tonight. You'd be with me and just speak through me that this time would be pleasing unto you. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are, we're going to take a look at the last few verses of uh, James chapter 3. Um, I'm going to pick up a little bit here where we were talking um, in verse 14 where it says, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. The wisdom, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now this is important because obviously... We get uh, done talking about uh, uh, peace here in the end of chapter 3, and immediately we move into chapter 4, and it's talking about war, the opposite. Conflict, fighting, uh, contention. And uh, I don't think we're going to get there necessarily tonight, but uh, we'll, we're hopefully going to get through these last few verses. Um, but what we find is this comparison between the wisdom of the world and God's wisdom. Now, we already started broaching the subject about it, about talking about how we can be uh, demonstrate that wisdom from God by what we say. Uh, the book of Proverbs has a lot about uh, those things where, where we were talking about, you know, even the fool is considered wise, um, you know, paraphrasing when he holds his speech, when when we take a look at uh, wisdom being uh, uh, demonstrated when there is a uh, a word that is, uh, again, spoken at the right time, the right place, and in the right manner. But uh, here he points out something that causes uh, this other form of wisdom to arise. And when we're seeking to do what God wants us to do, and we're seeking the right kind of wisdom, there's going to be a specific result, as he says. 
But when we start looking at the other type of wisdom, this one that he points out that descendeth not from above, meaning it is not from God, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish, it has a certain result that is produced. And again, what we're talking about here is the fruit of our words. What is it that we say? That tongue it can it can say one thing uh, and then say another thing right out of it, as he points out, to, you know, cursing and blessing. So what we find in this passage in verse 14 is he talks about things that come out of our mouth that are very clearly things that are contrary to the wisdom of God. And those things that he points out is uh, bitter envying and strife. Now, now bitterness in itself is a problem. If you just flip over uh, to a couple of pages uh, over to uh, the book of Hebrews, and uh, um, and if you take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 15, <clears throat> here he says, um, just back up to verse 14 again because it's pertinent, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. In verse 15 here, he's talking, he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And here's here's one of the reasons why uh, that bitterness is a problem, because it does bring about trouble. It brings about problems. Uh, bitterness is exactly the opposite of the forgiveness. Uh, when somebody is forgiving and somebody is caring and somebody is compassionate, um, they have a certain attitude towards somebody that is charitable. Somebody that is bitter has exactly the opposite. Uh, they are generally filled with hate. They're filled with malice. Uh, sometimes violence towards a person. There's all sorts of things that can happen and occur when bitterness is there. Now, here he uses in James chapter 3 this idea this uh, of bitterness to describe specifically envying. Now, envying is something that God detests because that envying is associated with covetousness and lust. And what... We find, you know, there's there's a big difference between jealousy and envy. Uh, God is called, as one of His names, jealous. Jealousy is not a bad thing. You you know, a, a spouse should be jealous over the you know their 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 partner. Their uh, you know, a husband should be jealous over the wife, and the wife should be jealous over the husband because they don't want anyone else in the marriage. It's only supposed to be the two and God. So we, we, we get that understanding and there's people that will do that. Now, obviously we don't let jealousy get to the point of certain things happening and occurring, but the Bible points out that, you know, a guy that uh, is jealous over his wife and thinks something about it, uh, that somebody's doing something to try to steal his wife away, that guy is going to be angry and is going to come after you. And the Bible really doesn't say anything bad about the guy coming after the other one, because again, that's not supposed to be. But what we find is, is we find that jealousy, while it's a thing that can be spiritual, God is a jealous God. He doesn't want anyone being, uh, or anything being worshipped over him. He is the one true God, and he is God, and there is none else. So we understand that. He's jealous about that. He told Israel that he's that. But envying is different. 
Envying is something where you look at something and you begin to question, if you will, God's providence towards you. You begin to question how he provides and what he is, what it is that he gives to you. And this is where that bitterness can come up. And when this bitterness shows up, it is against God and it affects how we speak. This bitter envying that shows is something that is again very, very much against God and His very nature. Because if somebody sits there and says, "Well, I didn't get that," that's not jealousy. That's that's, if you will, murmuring, complaining. That is somebody that is uh, uh, um, obviously wanting something that is not theirs, and that's really truly what covetousness is about. Wanting something that you can't have, that doesn't belong to you. Lust is something where that heart is inclined to those things and desiring those things and desiring them more than, than the, than what should be desired of God. We, we, we take a look at what lust is and we begin to define how lust works. We find over there that uh, uh, Paul says that it was lust as the sin that killed him spiritually. We find that that is a, that's a big issue because again, lust is a pride sin. Covetousness is a pride sin. Envying is a pride sin. Bitterness is a pride sin. Strife is a pride sin. And this is this is where James is really getting to this point, and he gets into it much deeper over here in, in James chapter four, where he begins to talk about pride and what pride does, and how we draw an eye to God, and how God resists the proud, uh, give His grace to the humble. All of these verses that we understand about where 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 um, pride comes from, and obviously again resisting the devil. What we find is is that that pride is what causes our mouths. To speak foolishly. And when we begin to utter things that are, if you will, envying of, well, why does that person have that? I deserve that. Why is that person getting blessed when I am not getting blessed? And again, that concept of mind is, is that, again, it's one of unthankfulness and malcontentment. Where we have to stop and say, okay, look, truly, I, I I have a lot to be thankful for. I, I have such an inordinate amount of blessings in my life that if I was to spend all day, I don't think I would exhaust the amount of blessings I've received from God. If we were to just stop and think about that for a brief moment, we would be overwhelmed with the thought of him blessing us. But the problem is, is that this, this type of wisdom, which is a foolishness, if you will, something that is what the world says, well, if you want that, then why don't you go get that? That leads into James chapter four. It may not be something God wants for you. And there is the problem with envying. If God hasn't given it to you, Either A, you're not really qualified to get it, 
B, it's not the right time for you to have it. C, you're going to misuse it. I mean, all of these things we can easily identify. There are reasons why God does not give us everything that we ask for. And and we, when we get into James 4, we'll find out about that. And somebody's going to say, well, there's Bible verses. There's multiple Bible verses that says, ask and you shall receive. But he, he covers it here. He says, you ask amiss. You ask to, to heap it upon your lust. And that's what the envying is. We see here that there's also this issue of where he says, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, that desire to fight, that desire to fight is, is something that is, um, there's something about it. Always wanting to be in conflict is a problem. You know, Europe has been so war-torn and ravaged by uh, by 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 conflict that the that the landscape is irreparably damaged because of it. I mean, you know, obviously World War II there was massive damage that took a lot of reconstruction effort to put back together. Right now over there in the Ukraine, things are getting blown apart again. You know, going back to what war accomplishes, destruction. We start thinking about uh, the strife and the conflict and what happens. There's long-term effects to strife and conflict. I'll give you a physical example. Um, I studied um, chemical weapons when I was younger, and one of the um, the the research... Uh, um, uh, articles that I was looking at was a, uh, issue of a farmer that was over in Ypres and uh, that was a major area of conflict during World War I where they used a massive amount of chemical weapons. They decided for some reason that would be a good way to try to kill the enemy or, you know, do things, realized not always the best and not always the, best, the most effective and quite actually some of the most gruesome ways to kill people. Um, and, uh, but that's what man does. Man always finds a better way to kill people. Um, I mean, you know, uh, and everybody talks about the sanctity of life and so on and so forth, but man alive, we've made an art form out of killing people. And, uh, there was this farmer in this field that he had, and he had this tree that was out there and he went and he cut down the tree and it was all, you know, a hot summer day. And he cuts down the tree, it falls, and uh, he's like, whew, I need to take a breather, take a break. He sits down on the trunk of the tree that he just cut down. And he sits there, and after a while, he's like, man, why is my backside burning? And by the time he got from that stump to inside the house, the whole backside of his body was one big giant blister. Because that tree had been harboring mustard gas in its bark and in its uh, xylem for years, years. He chopped it down in the 1980s. That chemical weapon was used somewhere in, you know, around 1913 or something along that lines. That's how long it stayed active inside that. That all originated from what? Conflict a war, a world war, where millions of people lost their lives. 
And it's still today, you have to be careful. Just the other day, over in Britain, another another perfect example, somebody's digging around, they're, you know, building buildings, they dig, they hit something metal. When they hit something metal when they're digging, everybody stops in Britain because they don't know what it is. And many times it's not pipes. It's 500-pound bombs that never exploded. And they go and they dig them up and they have to explode them, detonate them, pump out the whatever it is, however they can do it safely. When you want to talk about a construction job that is, if you will, hazardous, I wouldn't want to be that guy that's digging the hole. I'd be wanting, I'd be anywhere, anywhere, but around that uh, construction site when they're digging the hole. I'd be five miles away because I don't want to, you know, I know what the capability of that, you know, explosive device can do. But again, what is that? That is the repercussions of conflict. And the same thing is true when he's talking about, you know, bitter envying and strife that is in our hearts is going to come out of our mouths. And it is going to create sometimes irreparable harm. This is what God is getting at is let's get an understanding of exactly how damaging our words can be. And he says, you know, this is not something to glory about. And again, when we start talking about it, specifically pointing out there in verse 15, he says, glory not. When a person glories over something like that, that is a pride thing. It's pride. And again, man has been a thief for a long time. We try to steal things from God. We try to rob God. And mainly people try to rob God of his glory. They try to take it away from him. People try to boast on themselves of how great they are and what they've accomplished and what they've done. But let's be honest. God's the one that gave them the ability. God's the one that gave them the the capability. God's the one that gave them the mental capacity to do those things. He didn't have to give you that. He could have given you the mental capacity of a bag of rocks. But, he, you know, he obviously chose not to. So we have to understand that God shows these things and it demonstrates his glory as what it should do. But when a person is doing these things, and if you will, they're glorying about it and talking about themselves, boasting, and if you will, talking about what they deserve and why somebody else doesn't deserve it and how bad that person is and creating a fight and a conflict, and if you will, being proud over that, God says that's a lie against the truth. It's a lie against the truth, as he mentions right there. Lie not against the truth. Now, obviously, we know, according to Ephesians 4, we're not supposed to lie to one another. That's just something that, you know, God has this expectation of that's not supposed to occur and happen as brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember, the, the, the James is not writing to a bunch of unsaved people here. He's writing to Jewish brothers and sisters that are scattered abroad, that, quite frankly, the Jewish people have had these issues for some time. 
We find it very well manifest in the Gospels and in their response towards Jesus Christ. But these are individuals that are claiming Christ. This is not being written to unsaved individuals. This is not being written to reprobates or whatever you want to call them, unbelievers. This is being written to somebody that says, I believe Jesus Christ is God. He is the son of God who came and died on the cross for my sins, for the forgiveness of sins, so that I might have eternal life with him. And again, he rose again from the grave, arose from the grave so that I would have that eternal life and be able to have that victory that he wrought. But, but, but here, here's the issue. When a person starts talking about themselves and they start talking about their own glory and they start talking about what they deserve and, and, and how much they disagree or hate another person or have a conflict with another person and that person is, 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 you know, allowing that to affect them, the end result of what we wind up seeing is this, is that we find that it becomes a lie. Here's the words again. He goes back to that lie. But specifically, he's saying now, this is a lie against the truth of the word of God. The truth of who he is. Jesus Christ said, "I," specifically of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He specifically said in his prayer over in John 17, he said, Thy word, speaking about the word of God, which he is, is truth. And here's where James is getting to to this, uh, if you will, uh, expectation that God has of believers. He expects us to stop lying. And very specifically, he expects us to stop saying things that go against what we should be doing. As Christians. Because that's a lie. We say one thing and we do something else, very much like we're talking about over there in the book of First John. The hypocrisy of it. The partiality behind it. All of the things that we've already looked at in the first two chapters. There's the problem. If we, you know, and again, here's where he's pointing out. He's saying, look, you, you, you're saying you've got faith. Then show it, demonstrate it, have works that glorify God. But here's the problem is people will not say those things and they will glory in themselves. And it becomes, if you will, a lie against what God has really, truly done for them. Somebody that walks around and says, I, I am a Christian and then does the most horrific things imaginable, there becomes a question about what they truly believe. And there are there are tons of people out there that do that. There are tons of people out there right now that go about and they claim to be Christians and they say some of the most horrible things to other people, about other people, and things of that nature. There's even individuals running around here in, in in the Vancouver area that flat out say that if somebody has committed a certain sin, that they can never get to heaven, ever. That's 
it's not what the Bible says. God has forgiven some of, some of the most horrific sins that I think anybody has ever committed. God forgave David what he did. Yeah. Moses, Solomon, yeah. I mean, the, the list goes on. Peter, all of these people, I mean, he forgave them. Paul. Yeah. Let's think about that for a minute. He forgave us. Regardless of what the sin is, God's, if you will, mercy, grace, and forgiveness is greater than that sin. God's grace is always greater than the sin. If not, he's not God. And that's where people need to begin to understand that concept. But that's what people go around saying. And then they turn around and say, well, I'm a Christian. And I'd say, no, you're not. You can't be if you believe those things. Because that's a lie against the truth of the word of God. And therein is the problem. They have bitter envying or they have strife. There's something wrong with the heart. There's something wrong with the heart. Take a look down here a little bit further as we kind of look at this passage. Um, go over just really quick to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, I just want to point this out, you know, speaking about these things with envy and so on and so forth that come up. First Corinthians chapter 13, and as we get down to here to uh, verse 4, it says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. First Corinthians 13, 4, it's probably one of the most profound statements that you can find in this passage, he says, charity suffereth long and is kind. After you've suffered a while, you generally for most people, our ability to exhibit compassion and kindness is diminished. But when charity of God is applied, we can be. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity envieth not. And there lies the real reason. And again, charity being an attitude of the heart, here comes the problem. What has been being put into our heart is having an effect on what comes out of our mouth and what we want and what we desire. So what do we have to do? We have to say, well, I'm not going to put that in my heart. I'm not going to allow that to affect me. I'm going to make a different choice. I'm going to have a different decision to say. I'm going to make a judgment that that's not good for me. These are all biblical things that we have to begin to do. We have to pick up and say, look, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pick up uh, charity rather than anything else. Why? Because we see here there's several things that are, if you will, against a charitable mindset or a charitable heart attitude. Where he talks about bitter envying and strife, we know that that's not charitable. Where he talks about partiality and without hypocrisy over there in verse 17. Those are things that are not charitable. Those are all things that are against God. They're contrary. And for a believer to say, I am of Christ and have these things in there, it's a contradiction of terms. It's a lie against the truth. 
In verse 15, he talks about it and he calls it a form of wisdom. But it's a form of worldly wisdom. He says, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And here, here comes the, you know, the, the big issue about this, this wisdom. Uh, it, it is wisdom, if you will. You look at it, it speaks of self. It speaks of pride. It speaks of, you know, quote unquote, my feelings, uh, things of that nature. Uh, all of these things, if you, if you will, they're physical in form. They're physical in form, they're fleshly, and if you will, they're satanic in nature. Take a look at how he describes it. He says, earthly. Now, what is the one thing that we know about this earth? This earth it does not last. God has pointed out in several scriptures that this ball that we swing around this universe on is going to be dissolved. And people talk sometimes about it uh, being, if you will, uh, I almost want to use the word recycled, but it's it's not the word that they uh, that they use. But they they, they talk about it uh, um, um, being uh, restored or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I can't think of it now. But basically, that, that it's going to be the same earth. It's just going to be kind of, if you will, refurbished. Like, no, 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 no. The Bible says that the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat and that the earth is going to pass away with a great noise, burning with fire. To me, that sounds like nuclear detonation, but, you know, uh, again, I look at that and go, that's what's going to happen. And then he creates a new heaven and a new earth. He doesn't take the old one and recycle it. It's gone. Matter has disappeared. Why? Because God can do that. He lives outside the laws of physics. Why? Because he can create matter. Physics says matter can be neither created nor destroyed. And what does God say? Well, I made it so I can destroy it. It's just is the way he operates. So if he wants it all gone down even to the smallest subatomic particles and have it, if you will, be dissolved, he can do that because he's God. But it's earthly. You know what that means? That's, that's something that's physical. It's not something that lasts. And generally, when people are envying or fighting, if you will, strife about something, it is something that is generally, well, temporary. Something that's temporary. Something that comes and goes. You know, people, people fight about stuff, ridiculous stuff all the time. I mean, again, you know, just pointing back to, to, to the wars that have ravished this, this world. What is it all for? Resources, people, uh, you know, people try to say it's for honorable things. It's not. Land. Whatever it may be is what they're striving for. There's a physical thing that doesn't last. Because those resources don't always stick around. You have to make sure that you manage those resources correctly. Not just go in and pillage the land and then move on. Which is what a lot of people do. 
But we find here that, that it's earthly, as in it is not heavenly. It is not of God. It is something that is temporal in its nature and will eventually disappear. God's wisdom will never disappear. God's wisdom has been with him from the beginning and will continue to be with him till the very end. You take a look at how wisdom is described over there in the book of Proverbs. It becomes very clear. But the things that are of this world, the wisdom of this world, is also, as he says, sensual. What does that mean? It means that it is based upon uh, the senses of the body. Pleasure. Quick things. And we, we find that, you know, kind of going over there and talking about these things in chapter 4, where he starts talking about all of those things. And again, you know, we'll reference those verses when we get there, where he's talking about there's pleasure in sin for a season. It's for a brief moment in time. But we're talking about this sensual thing. These are things that, that, that very clearly, uh, um, th- th- they're meant to be flesh-oriented. The pleasing of the body. And it's, and again, it's but a, for a moment, right? You know, there's that, 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 uh, little adage that runs around, uh, uh, a moment on the lips and a lifetime on the hips, as they say. <laughs> um, you know, things of that nature, but, but again, it's, to a degree, we see some, some of the truth behind it. There's a moment that, that, that it's a pleasurable thing, but then there's the consequence of it. And people don't always understand that. People try to escape consequences. And if there's one thing that God has said, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, you will, you, there will be consequences to your actions, whether they are good or whether they are bad. If you have a good action, you will reap good fruit. You will have good consequences. You sow evil and wickedness and sin. There will be a consequence, as he says, of, if you will, a reaping of death that occurs. Destruction. And that's generally what happens. Sin will have somebody, you know, entrapped in something for a short period of time, but then it leads to something else. It leads to death. It leads to heartache. It leads to broken relationships. It leads to uh, depression that is, again, beyond the the normal, uh, if you will, sorrow that men and women experience. It, it, It leaves impact marks. In people's lives. But it's fleshly oriented. And again, if there's one thing that I understand about this flesh, this flesh is not meant to last. You know, a while ago, a bunch of scientists and engineers sat down and they looked at the human body and they said, you know, the human body is designed to run and live forever. They said if the system is continually maintained, 
there, there would be, if you will, quote unquote, an eternal life. But the problem is, is they realize that that's not the case because again, then comes the laws of physics that say everything breaks down. Your cells break down. Your body breaks down. You, 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 again, we're not as young as we used to be. We're not as young as we think we are either. But the end result is what? We understand our bodies begin to break down. We can't do the things that we used to do. You ever see some of those kids playing on the playgrounds before they made all these playgrounds like super safe? I mean, back in the day, I mean, I, I remember, you know, we had monkey bars that were made out of wrought iron pipes and, you know, you're, you're swinging across those things. You hit your head on one of those, man, you're getting a concussion. What'd you do as a kid? You stood up, and brushed it off, and kept playing. You know, you're over, you can barely walk, and you're, you're puking and everything, and the teacher's running up, you're like, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, just rub some dirt in it, keep moving. You know, things of that nature. All, all of that. But our, our bodies break down. Our bodies can't be as resilient as they once were. And here's the issue. It's, again, a temporal thing. Our bodies are a temporal thing. We're saved, born again, child of God. We know that our body waits for redemption. Our soul is redeemed right now, and praise God for that. It's bought. Our sins are forgiven. I have a home in heaven. We've got the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us. Jesus Christ is dwelling in us, and we are in him. I mean, there's all these great, precious promises. But man alive, we know that we fight this flesh on a daily basis. And what our flesh wants and what our, you know, what we wind up caving to. And Paul talks about that and then that battle that goes on. But again, it's, it's, it's the carnality. It's the fleshliness of it. And here's where he's getting at. When you start talking about sensual, that's all it is about. Pleasing the flesh. A temporary, temporary moment. And then he says devilish. Devilish. Now, while we know in the Bible, the Bible doesn't use the word demons necessarily. It uses the word devils to describe. And we know that there is the devil, as in Lucifer himself, Satan, that old dragon, the old serpent, as he's called. Uh, He's got multiple names uh, throughout Scripture, but, you know, accuser of the brethren and so on and so forth. But what we do know about him is this is that what he does is is evil at its very root. It is anti-Christ, it is anti-God, it is against everything that God loves and God wants, and he does everything in his power to be the opposite of that. So much so as even describing him, you know, changing himself into an angel of light just so he can destroy and, you know, do things that would go against what God does. And this is how James is, is, is being inspired to write this and to phrase what these words look like. And I think if we were to step back for a moment and look at our words and look at how we say things, and we begin to understand this concept, we'll understand this. 
when I say what I want to say, and I'm going to say it regardless of what God says, defying him, creating, if you will, bitter envying and strife in a form of worldly wisdom, those words are satanic in their very nature. How, how, how did the devil as the serpent deceive Eve? He didn't pin her down, force her to eat the apple. He didn't trick her into thinking, uh, that she was eating, uh, the fruit of the tree of life and go, haha, no, that was really, no, he didn't do that. How did he go about doing it? He deceived her using words. He questioned the word of God. He lied. Jesus Christ said that he's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The things that he said in his heart when iniquity was found was five I wills against God, by the way, against him. All those things, when we begin to look at this, we need to really take into consideration how God views our words. And if they're being viewed in such a way that he would call them devilish, as in that would be their origin, perhaps we want to make sure that what comes out of our mouth is godly instead. If we're claiming to be Christians, that would be the logical thought process. Take a look here in verse 16 where he says, as we continue on over there in James chapter 3, he says, for where envying and strife is, those two things that we pointed out in the heart, there's confusion in every evil work. So as he says right there, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. So where that is, and let's think about this in the multiple facet that he's describing this as, if it's in our heart, we're going to have confusion and evilness in our heart. And when that comes out and those words are said and those things begin to spread out, then we are creating more confusion and more evil work into the world. And God is not the author of confusion. He's not the one that confuses people. The devil is. Again, you sit down and you take a look at some of the, 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 the false doctrines and false religions of the world today, and you will get confused. As I said, I've read the Quran before and I, I just walked away and said, what did I just read? Because that did not make any sense to me at all. It was confusing. And it wasn't a cultural thing, by the way. It was saying one thing over here and then saying something completely the opposite over here. Well, which one is true? There's the problem. That's a lot of the issues with false doctrines that are out there. You have people that say, oh, hey, hey, we believe the Bible, but then they've got these other extra scriptural books that they try to add to it that contradict what the Bible says. And even those books within themselves contradict themselves. 
you sit down and you read that and you go, what does that even mean? You say this over here and then over here you've talked about something totally different. And how does that match up with the Bible, which you say you believe? And people wonder why people walk away from religion. Walk away from God. Because if that's what people think that God is, I, well, if, if I thought that's what God is, I wouldn't want any part of it either. But that's not who God is. And what it comes down to is, if you will, envying and strife. Things that are contrary to God. And here's where James is really getting down to it. He's saying, look, here's, here's part of the, you know, here's the root of it. It's going to cause some, some, some major, uh, uh, confusion and harm in a person's life. He's talking about evil works over there. He's talking about good works. He's talking about, look, if you're saying that you believe God, there's going to be some evidence of it. Over here, he's saying, if you're seeing words that are envying and strife-filled, there's going to be evidence of that. And what is it? It's an evil work. Words do harm people. They harm relationships. They cause problems. Turn over to the book of Numbers. Just to kind of point this out really quick, in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter uh, 14. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, and uh, let's take a look at verse uh, 36 here. I just want to show this and kind of give an understanding of what happens. He says, The men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him, and by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. Now I bring this up to, to, to again, we read this before, but I bring this up again because you've got those 10 spies that went in and gave a false report. Two spies went in and gave a good report. Now, what I mean by a false report is this, is they falsely said, we can't do this at all, even with God. That was the problem. That was the lie against the truth. God promised he would give it to them. God promised he would protect them. God promised that this is yours. All you got to do is just walk in and take it. I will fight the battle for you. I'll drive them out with hornets. I'll drive them out with wild beasts. I will make sure that, you know, you people are protected. I mean, you go walk in and, t- and they took Jericho without any casualties. No casualties. Do you know what that would mean on a battlefield? Every conflict, you always think there's going to be casualties. How do I mitigate that? How do I reduce the number of casualties? These are all things that we have to be careful to do. But I guarantee you, one of the things that that, uh, people don't think of is the consequence. Here, if you will, is the evil work that came upon them. Because they said, God can't do it, what happened? They died by a plague. They died by plague. I, I'm not trying to be morose here or anything like that, but I've had thoughts about, you know, if, 
When I exit this world, how do I want to go? Well, number one, I want to go via rapture. Why? I just, I would rather not die. Just rather not go through that experience. Thank you very much. But if I do, you know, there's certain ways that I would prefer to go. It's just, I mean, if you haven't had those thoughts, well, okay, just understand I'm a little weird, okay? But I think about those things. But dying by a plague is not something that I really would even want to think about. Again, you know, studying the chemical weapons and things like that, we also studied biological agents that people would go and they would distribute things such as anthrax and, you know, botulism and things of that nature that they would use to, again, try to kill and destroy enemies and cause high casualties. Um, some of the ways that they would talk about releasing bubonic plague and things like that, which, by the way, we have our first U.S. case down in Oregon. Congratulations, Oregon. Again, you have uh, achieved a status that I don't think anybody wanted. But uh, they did. They've got their first case of bubonic plague down there in Oregon. And everybody's freaking out right now. Because, again, you know, bubonic plague, it's going to get in the fleas, and the fleas are going to attack us, and we're all going to die, and it's going to be, you know, bring out your dead all over again, and the plague masks and things of that nature. But I'll tell you this, understanding what those plagues are and what the symptoms are and what the eventual death is, I would not want to go that way. I would not want to die that way. You want to talk about suffering, that's not something I would want to do. Those men, that's what happened to them. But they brought it upon themselves. They brought it upon themselves. And here's where God's really getting to this point of, here's the issue. You say something, you will have repercussions. In verse 17, he says, but wisdom that is, uh, going back to James chapter 3, Uh, Verse 17, he says, but the wisdom that is from above, that's of God, is first pure. Let's understand that. Pure when we're talking about holiness. Pure as in without sin. Pure as in righteous and righteousness. Pure. Then peaceable. Without conflict. Without strife. Without confusion without hurt, without harm, gentle, not abusive. That's a big thing nowadays is people talk about this. We talk about emotional abuse and physical abuse and all sorts of other abuses. Uh, uh, Verbal abuse is one of them. Verbal abuse is is at the top of God's list of things he does not like. But you know what? The wisdom of God, when it is applied, the words come out with gentle. As a matter of fact, this is what he desires of his, 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 his children, is that they be gentle. Not bullies. Not people that, that, that if you will, are, are just you know, beating people up all the time. That's that's not what God wants. He wants somebody to be gentle. Why? Because that shows compassion. 
shows care. He was gentle with the woman at the well. He was gentle with the woman that was caught in adultery. He was gentle with the children. He was gentle with Peter. He was gentle with John. He was gentle with James. By the way, James and John, when they were not received in one town, they went to the Lord and said, let us call fire down from heaven. (laughs) Wouldn't quite call that gentle gentleman, but, you know, there it is. Gentleness. And if there's one thing that I see about society today, there is a lack of gentleness. It's heavy-handed. It's abusive. He says it's gentle, easy to be entreated. And, 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 you know, again, let's understand what we're talking about with this word entreated here. When we think about this, the, the word entreated means that you can receive it readily. It's easy. And he says it very clearly. He says, easy to be entreated. This is something that when you ask for, it can easily be obtained. Easily obtained. Not something that is difficult to get. There are things that you have to work for. You know, in today's day and age in society, you want a house, you got to work for it. Because housing prices are ridiculous. You, 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 you've got, you've got to really strive and labor for it. You know what? If you ask of God for this, it's not going to be something that is hard to get. People will say, oh man, getting that wisdom has got to be hard. No. You just follow the word of God. That wisdom will come. Amen. Just naturally. It just flows. God doesn't make it difficult. He didn't make salvation difficult. He's not going to make his wisdom difficult either. Go over there and read. You know, here's wisdom calling out in the streets, just saying, come. Just come. That's it. Just what do you need to do? Just come. I'll give you everything you want. Come. Go over here. Something totally different. Versus the woman in Proverbs 7, which has to do seduce. But here he says, easy to be entreated. It's full of mercy. As we talked about what mercy is in the previous uh, verses and previous chapters, talking about how people treat others and they do it without mercy. That's the same way that God will treat them. He says, full of mercy and good fruits. And again, that good fruit is that fruit of the Spirit that we find over in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Meekness, gentleness, goodness, temperance. You know, all those things that, uh, I forgot faith in there, sorry. But all those things that are, that are described there that come because of a relationship with God, a relationship with the Spirit. Those are all things that, that are good fruits. Not bad fruits. Not bad fruit. Like we talk about, you know, there's nothing worse than biting into a piece of bad fruit. And I've described it before. The worst, the worst things that I've ever had, I've never had the situation where I bit into an apple and bit into a worm. So praise the Lord for that. But I'll tell you this, I've had issues where, you know, you, you peel the orange and you're getting excited and you put that piece of orange in your mouth and you expect it to be nice and juicy, but it's dry and nasty. There's something wrong with that orange. 
and you spit it out, and you're like, ugh, it's gross. Sometimes when you're unconsciously sitting there eating the grapes, you ever have that happen? You're sitting eating the grapes, and you pick one up, and you put it in your mouth, and you expect the nice crisp crack as, you know, the skin breaks, and you bite into it, and it's just got that flavor, and it's so good, and you're just like, oh. Then you pick the one up, and you put it in your mouth, and it's just like, mush. And you're like, you know, (laughs) you can't stand it. There's never any of that with God. There's never any of that with God's wisdom when it's applied to our lives. It says, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Two things that God has already clearly stated throughout his word that he does not like. And he can't, he, those things he can't stand. He can't stand. You know, you got people running around today talking about, oh, it, it, please, there's just, there's just so much of it going on out there. You know, we see it with the nation of Israel. Oh, hey, we're Jews. We're number one. Everyone else is, you know, trash. It's not the case. God died for them too. Okay? Let's get that, understand that. You got people running around, white supremacists. Oh, you know, the white race, the white race, the white race. You know what? That's partiality. God's not a racist. As a matter of fact, you know, when we start talking about races, you don't find the word race in anywhere in Scripture other than running a race. What do you find? You find how God, does, you know, breaks people up. Tribes, kindred, nations, and tongues. Never classifies them by skin color or ethnic background or anything of that nature. People run around saying, well, you know, the people on the other side of the camp too. People run around out there saying that, nope, the black race is number one. And they call themselves Christians. That's not of God. It's not of God. It's not, it's not what God wants. He's not that way, as we've discussed before in the previous chapter. But here he gets back down to verse 18. We'll close with this. In verse 18, he says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Here's how this works. A person that seeks to bring about peace with their words in a wisdom of God format is going to have a fruit of righteousness that is something that somebody else will want to partake of. God describes us as trees. We yield fruit. The tree does not benefit from its own fruit. We need to understand that. That, you know, in the typology, that fruit is yielded and given freely to others. And this is what we're talking about here. That fruit of righteousness, it starts with peace. It starts there. And I guarantee you, if we were to reflect on our words and ask ourselves, is that a peaceable way to say that? Or is that going to create a conflict? Is that the right 
manner in which I can phrase that that will not cause somebody to stumble. And again, it just leads right here to where we see in chapter 4 where he starts talking about, well, why is the reason that we have wars? The reason we have wars is because people don't obey God. That's what it boils down to. They're not willing to speak peaceful words. They're not willing to yield to the Holy Spirit. They're not willing to ask and sit there and analyze and say, God, search and try my words. Put a watch over my mouth and my lips. Make sure that what I'm saying is going to be pleasing and honoring unto you and all everything that I, everything that I say. And as I've said before, it would behoove us to take five seconds and think about what we're going to say before we say it. But what happens? No, we want to be the next person that gets the next point in. Because as some reason, somehow, conversations all became about debate. Well, if there's one thing I know about what God says about debate is he doesn't care for it. Because it causes problems. And it should be avoided. Next week, we'll get into chapter four. I was kind of hoping maybe to be in broaching some of that subject. We kind of talked a little bit about it, but didn't get quite as far as I wanted to. But uh, chapter four, again, uh, you know, if you're reading ahead, just sit, read ahead and think about what exactly God is saying here. There is a lot in chapter four. Chapter three was pretty intense. Chapter four really gets to the heart of the matter. And we start realizing exactly where God is saying our problems are. Again, remember, he's writing this to believers. And when he says, from whence come wars and fightings among you, he's not talking about with the world. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where, again, that lie against the truth exists. We've got to stop those type of things. But we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. Let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for all that you've uh, taught us from uh, Chapter 3. Lord, I just pray that uh, as we endeavor to please you, that we would take a good hard look at our words. We would consider them thoughtfully and wisely and prayerfully that, Lord, we would please you and honor you in all that we say and do. That, Lord, we would seek to be peacemakers, not individuals that come around and um, attempt to start fights and wars, but very specifically, Lord, are those that desire to pursue peace and into it. Thank you again for those that are here tonight. Pray you take us home safely. All of this I ask and pray in your son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.